Hello, and welcome back to the Fairy and Fantasy class. We're still in the middle of Andrew Lang's fairy books as we continue our examination of the transition of fairy stories into the modern era. Today, we think about Snow White and Rose Red, Jack the Giant Killer, and the indescribable Black Bull of Norway. I ended last time saying I wanted to talk about Rumpelstiltskin, and uh, especially to do a little comparison and contrast between Rumpelstiltskin and the... <laughs> The, 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 the cake house witch, right, in Hansel and Gretel. Um, what do you see? I mean, I, I point them out because they're two of the, I, the... The connection that I see that makes me want to talk about them together is that, first of all, they are both explicitly magical creatures, right? They both have this sort of fairy element, especially the witch. I mean, in fact, the witch is kind of delightful, as a fairy creature. She, we find her in the middle of the woods, right? We go and you get completely lost in the woods and there she is. In fact, there's that same, in, in, in fact, quite parallel connection or, or experience that Hansel and Gretel have with the father in Beauty and the Beast, right? Sort of lost in the woods and then you, you've suddenly crossed this threshold into this strange world where houses are made out of cake uh, and windows are made out of candy, and, and, but it's sort of delightful because this is like the juvenile version. Um, when we've seen grown-ups in this situation, what do they see? Gems, riches, very beautiful topless women, right? I mean, this is... When children come into fairy, what do they see? Candy. Candy. <laughs> The whole house is made of cake, right? I mean, it's like the kid version of, of like, you know, that of, like, Sir Orfeo's fairy king's, like, solid gem castle, right? Um, it's really, it's really wonderful. Um, it, well, I mean, except the cannibalism part. That's <laughs> admittedly unwonderful, but... But is uh, it really cannibalism? Well, yeah, is it really cannibalism? No, exactly. It's, uh, she's just a carnivore, I guess. Um, a specialized carnivore. Um, yeah, so... But, but anyway, so I, that intro is clear. And similarly with, with Rumpelstiltskin, we don't get that, um, you know, the, 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 the sort of lead-up that we, through the medieval poems, have gotten used to, the I am wandering in the forest by myself and I, I find myself in the land of fairy introduction. He intrudes on her though this is a trend that we have been seeing in several of the Andrew Lang poems. But again, his arrival um, and his actions are clearly magical. He is plainly coming from some other world and can do this impossible task magically, spinning straw into gold. Um, and he you know, makes his demands on her and things. So in both cases, we have fairy encountering normal people but both in this sort of antagonistic, ultimately antagonistic sense. The one demanding her child for unknown reasons, though I think there are some pretty heavy implications. Um, by the way, do you think I'm crazy to think that Rumpelstiltskin wants to eat her kid? I know Mac thinks I'm crazy. Well, in his chant, right? He talks about like getting the oven and the cauldron ready. Now, it can't rule out the fact that he's making a big celebratory feast to welcome his new favorite child and best friend. Right? Could could be a complete coincidence. I absolutely agree. 
But given the number of other people who are eating children in these stories, I don't know. I don't know. Though it is interesting that he's, if he is interested in eating the child, he's unusual in that he's a dwarf. Right? Who eats kids? Witches, ogres, giants, wild animals. Lots of people eat kids, but not dwarfs, except for Rumpelstiltskin. Um, now that's, 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 that's interesting. We get dwarfs being very rude to people in Snow White and Rose Red, for instance, right? But he doesn't seem likely, he doesn't see, that is the dwarf in Snow White and Rose Red doesn't seem likely to try to eat anybody. Um, like the guy who can't win a wrestling match with a fish, apparently, and who is himself in danger of being eaten constantly, uh, throughout that story. And I, I, I think we have reason to imagine Rumpelstiltskin in similar kind of stature to the dwarf in Snow White and Rose Red, by the way. I mean, the, 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 he's described as a mannequin, right? He's this little, you know, not... I mean, I don't think he's even like three feet high. I, I think he's a little, little mini person. Um, like the dwarf who is so small, again, that like an eagle swoops down and picks him up as prey um, in Snow White and Rose Red. Um, who is going to cook his food with little wood chips, right? These are like, those serve as, lo- serve as logs for him. So we get these indications of exactly how small the, the mean-spirited little dwarf in Snow White and Rose Red is. And I'm, I, I don't see much reason to think that Rumpelstiltskin is much larger. But anyway, how does... So I guess the moral of the story is just that he could live on the kid for much longer, I guess. Uh, <laughs> well, you could salt them. Yeah, exactly. Well, never mind. Um, <laughs> the real question is, what other prey could he eat at that size? Mice? After he made hats out of their fur, for instance? <laughs> exactly. He could make a hat out of a mouse, probably. Um, but let us return to the initial question that I asked. Compare and contrast Rumpelstiltskin and the Hansel and Gretel witch. What do you notice? What do you, anything strike you about the ways in which they are similar or different? Okay? This might just be very anthropology of me, <laughs> but um, a lot of times anthropologists and folklore see fairy tales as reaffirming cultural boundaries. Um, creating a us mentality versus a them mentality. And so I saw the witch and uh, Rumpelstiltskin as doing that. Like, these are something that's other. It's something to be afraid of, to be avoided. And these are the the scapegoats or the victims that have to interact with them so the rest of us know to keep away from them. And that's especially interesting in Hansel and Gretel, right? Because, of course, we have the dual, semi-parallel antagonists in that story. That is, the witch who actually eats children and the stepmother who just wants them dead so they don't eat her food, right? Um, And the parallel between them is pretty clear. Um, Well, I mean, I say it's pretty clear. It's a very flippant thing to say. Um, That is, that they are both the enemies, both there are these two female figures who are clearly the enemies of of the child, right? Is it possible that the woodcutter never noticed his wife coming home covered in powdered sugar? (laughs) 
there are versions of the story that makes... I, because, of course, the witch is thrown in the oven and killed, and they return to find the stepmother mysteriously missing. <laughs> ah, that, that's been done. That's been done. I don't think we're... I, it's hard for me to see that as, like, the active implication of the story itself. I, I don't think that that's really... I'm, I'm not confident that we're invited to spell out that connection in that literal way, but it's an easy one to do. Um, it's an easy one to do. And it's, and it's been done, and interestingly, I think. Um, but I find myself resistant to it, because although it's cooler, certainly in a cinematographic way, I mean, if I were doing a film version, that would be kind of more fun. Uh, but the reason I find myself resistant to it is that it, I think it smooths over things. It simplifies things. Because the, the kind of antagonism that we get from the stepmother is different from the kind of antagonism, antagonism that we get from the witch. And so to just sort of imagine them as being the same, I think, makes the story a little bit less interesting. Um, because we don't see both of those two different angles. Jordan? Um, I noticed that both fairly self-destructive characters in, in, um, in a number of ways. The witch, um, for example, she, she's like, I'm going to throw this girl in the oven. She won't get in the oven? Okay, I'll show her how to get in the oven. Which is just, which it, it, it is, you know, possibly stupid. But Bumble Stilskin is not quite as stupid, but not only does he give away his name, admittedly, he doesn't think he's giving away his name. He thinks he's bragging. But then he tears himself in half to that people he drives one from the garden and grabs the other. So he, he, he actually commits an extremely bizarre form of suicide. Yeah, the death of Rumpelstiltskin is fantastic, isn't it? I mean, I, I don't know about you, but I didn't see that coming. Yes, though again, doesn't that sound like uh, Gromer Sommerjour, right? I mean, he could just kill Arthur. And doesn't have to do the whole, like, and I shall take advantage of this opportunity to send you on an apparently impossible quest. <laughs> but what I want to think about, though, is how that functions. As Kat has reminded us, these, the, these, these creatures, these characters, are other. They are not, they don't... Seem, they don't always, they sometimes have motivations which we can understand or relate to, but not always, and certainly we can't assume that. Um, you know, maybe in doing what he, you know, maybe there is some kind of, you know, law of their own that they are, they are operating under. I mean, even in sort of speculating this, we have to say, the, the point is just that we can't assume. And, you know, I would love to, well, eventually I want to come back the Black Bull of Norway, um, which maybe you didn't like it. I <laughs> love the Black Bull of Norway. It is possibly my favorite of all of these stories that we're going to read, and I think the, mo like the, the purest fairy story in this whole lot so far. It is incredible. But I admit that some of the stuff that I like about it is like the fact that it's really weird and almost completely inexplicable. Um, it's very evocative. Because most of the links that you would expect to be in that story aren't there, right? I mean, like, I had to read it three times through before I was just sure I wasn't skipping over stuff. I was like, wait, what, why is she climbing the glass hill again? Like, what gave her the impression that she has to... Uh, okay, 
nothing. Um, <laughs> she, she's in love with this prince. Why is she in love with this prince? Is that is he the same as the bow, I'm guessing? But we're not told. Okay, no, no, we're not told that. Okay, no, there isn't any reason that we know why she's, why she's doing this. Um, anyway, it's, uh, th- those links are genuinely absent. But I like that. It's really interesting. Um, anyway. Um, but again, one of the things that we see there is just we, we, are, we, are, we are in a different place. And that, to some extent, if we're demanding that these people and these creatures act exactly the same way as we would expect them to act, that's our fault. That's our problem. One of the points, I think, of this entire genre, one of the interesting things about this entire genre, in as much as it is a genre, or if it is a genre, is that we don't start off with that set, that set of assumptions, at least not the same set of assumptions, right? It's not a 19th century novel, right? This is not Jane Austen. This is not Middlemarch. This is not Charles Dickens, even. Charles Dickens operates by some different rules, right? Such as, like, the rule that says if you meet a minor character on page 30, he is going to, like, there's, like, a 100% chance that you're going to meet him later on in the novel in some massively important way, right? Like, that's one rule of Charles Dickens' universe, which is not usually true in, 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 in regular life. At least I have not found it myself true in my own experience that, uh, that the person to whom, like, if he drops a coin and you pick it up and give it to him that he's going to turn out later to be like a long-lost relative of yours who leaves you a fortune or something like (laughs) thus far that hasn't panned out for me but um anyway the point is this is not the rules that we operate by are different and one of the things that is so interesting about these stories is the way in which those there seems to be even a kind of pleasure in in leaving those rules behind. But I'm prattling now. Back to the witch in Rumpelstiltskin. We could also throw in our, well, I was going to say our long-bearded dwarf, our decreasingly long-bearded dwarf (laughs) uh, in in Snow White and Rose Red. What's interesting about these villains? What do they have in common? What do we know about them? They, they seem to underestimate the, the mortals, I guess. They are frustrated. They don't win. And why don't they win? Underestimation, in part. I, I mean, I agree. And Jordan, this goes back to your comment. I mean, the, the witch is pretty dumb. I mean, like, here, I'll show you how to crawl into the oven in which I am trying to which I am trying to get you to crawl into so I can kill you. That's not bright. It's just not a good move. Um, Gretel is resourceful, and that's good, um, but it's weird. It, that's odd. What the witch said. Even the whole chicken bone thing, right? Like, you never picked up on this? It doesn't have skin. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I know, like, okay, you're like, sure, you're short-sighted. I understand. Maybe you're really, really short-sighted. Okay, fine, fine. You know, like, we don't have LASIK surgery, but, yeah, like, a bone, like, it doesn't, a bone doesn't feel that much like a skinny person's finger. It just doesn't. But that seems, that, that's okay, right? 
what kind of so we what we what we see here seems to be a kind of a limitation. Think also of the ogress mother-in-law back in Sleeping Beauty, right? She also had certain interesting trends. Also, uh, she couldn't notice, for instance, that she didn't notice that she was eating goat and venison and lamb instead of kid and daughter-in-law, <laughs> right? Um, you know, when you think about it in those terms, like that is in the terms of like, gosh, why are the, you know, uh, these, these villains seem really dumb? I, I think we have to be careful not to just sort of judge them by, uh, by again, normal novelistic expectations. The trends that we do see are resourcefulness, right? The resourcefulness of the servant who replaces the kids with the meat and passes that off. The resourcefulness of Hansel, who replaces his finger with the bone of Gretel, who convinces her to go into the oven. And then with some uh, uh, pretty noteworthy, especially for little kid, gumption, you know, shoves her in and locks the door. Uh, that's that's pretty good. Um, we don't get the same thing with Rumpelstiltskin, exactly. Jordan? Um, something that occurred to me that originally I was going to dismiss as a bit of pedantry, but I think it's actually very important. The witch could have, if the oven's big enough to fit in it, curled Gremlin. I don't think we've ever seen a, a fairly active physical force upon a, a mortal. Like, that's a, something that even the ogres and giants don't generally do, they threaten to. I don't think we've ever actually seen them do something like that. Yeah, by the end of Jack's career, he's getting into just like standard fights with with giants, right? Um, that is where he's got his sword and they've got their club and, and you know, the two of them are going at it. Um, but yeah, even prior to that, um, the giants don't necessarily act as you would think. Like the giant who tries to, 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 uh, to break all his bones while he's in bed, right? Um, it, that, that does seem to be kind of, I, you know, going the long way around a little bit. Like, be, that he's right there. Why didn't you... And the oldest mother-in-law is scaly, but she never actually comes in on herself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, no, I, I, I agree. We don't see that kind of direct action much. Um, and I agree that that's interesting. Again, even, and I would come back, Mac, to your point about Rumpelstiltskin giving the Miller's daughter an out, right? Um, I'm going to make it possible for you to escape the trap I otherwise have you completely admired in because you promised that I would get your child, and now there's no way, there's no reason that I should have to, I guess, but maybe, maybe there is. This is what, this is the situation that we see created all the time. This is how. It, that does seem to be one of the ways in which these stories work. I thought I was going to say that uh, even in the aforementioned stand-up stand fight <coughs> as a giant, I'm pretty sure Jack always sees it. He comes up against the giant like, giant! Giant people! Kill! <laughs> right. They, they don't like jump out of the bushes and back down. Right. Right. There are sometimes when, as Jack's career is further advanced, when they get a little nervous hearing that he's coming, right? But, uh, but yeah, no, but no, I agree. They don't, they don't, he, he hunts them. They don't hunt him. Jack is 
Isn't it really I, sizes? I didn't, I didn't think about that, Mac, but if I had thought about that, I would have expected you to say it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it's true. But, I mean, that's a fair accusation, right? Do we see any benevolent giants? Uh, do we see many benevolent dwarves? Do we see, I mean, do we... It, it's, you know, not witches, eh, you know, that's a little bit. I mean, of course, if like, she's called a witch, that's kind of a giveaway. Um, but, like, women of whatever age with magical powers, you know, living off in the woods by themselves, that's, that's not necessarily, you know, that's not a no-brainer. She could be good. She could be bad. She could be in a different kind of case, as, again, with the, 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 the Sleeping Beauty fairy who passes the curse, right, who's not um, not a evil character, uh, even though she acts unpleasantly uh, towards Sleeping Beauty. No, I think it's, 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 it's right, though, you know, Jack is a little bit justified. I mean, those giants really were not very nice. And not just in self-defense. I mean, they were in the midst of being not nice to many other people, like those perfectly nice you know, women that they captured and tried to feed their husbands to, and, you know. That's a big deal. Livestock thief, man. He's just like, just a livestock thief. <laughs> it's like, just a bank robber, you know? Come on. <laughs> it's a big deal. Like, livestock is very important. Um, though, actually, that one, the first one that Jack fights is very interesting because that's not just a giant. That is the giant of Mont Saint-Michel. That's a big deal. That's a famous giant, especially since this is an Arthurian context. There are several uh, very famous Arthurian works in which that giant, in which there is a giant living on Mont Saint-Michel, and King Arthur goes and fights it one-on-one and kills it. Um, and there are some gruesome descriptions of, you know, of, of, of the giant and his... Uh, uh, roasting babies on spits and stuff and uh, uh it's horrible it's like a whole big cauldron of like chopped up kids it's i mean is like the, the 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 this is one of the english poets who describes this just uh, luxuriates on this just can't get enough of like how horrible uh how horrible the uh, this giant is who not only eats children but uh you know takes Duke's daughters and rapes them to death. I mean, he's just as horrible as can possibly be. And then King Arthur is the one who goes up and single-handedly sneaks up in the night, sneaks because he doesn't want his knights to stop him or to help him. So he sneaks off up to the mountain when his army is just nearby and he's heard this rumor that there's this giant there who has captured the Duke's daughter. Anyway, so he he goes and single-handedly fights it and kills it. And this is one of the famous feats of Arthur. And this is, this is in French sources. This is in English poems. This is a famous King Arthur moment. Um, so Jack starts off his career with a bang. Um, giant of Mont Saint-Michel. That's a big deal. Um, so th- that I found, I guess, from an Arthurian standpoint, really interesting. Jordan? Wasn't that the giant in Jeffrey's novel? Yeah, exactly. Jeffrey describes that. And uh, uh, and then a bunch of people follow him. He's in the alliterative Mort Arthur. He's in uh, he's in the French um, the the Vulgate cycle, uh, uh, Death of King Arthur. He's all over the place. The Giant of Mont Saint Michel. Yeah, yeah, that's the one from Jeffrey. Um, so yeah, so so Jack, little Jack, starts his career off big with an eighteen foot giant. The same one that Arthur already killed. Now that Arthur kills in other books, you see. 
Um, and Arthur, apparently far from being mad that Jack killed his giant that he's supposed to kill later on in his career, uh, is apparently likes it, so that's good. Yeah, yeah, I guess. Um, but what do we do with all this? That is, with the giants and the dwarfs and the witches, what kind of trends and patterns can you see? Can we, can we, can, can we point to some, to some larger thing, things, to some larger ideas behind these? What kinds of things are these stories interested in? One, I think, you know, Kelly pointed to one thing which I think is clearly important, which is the resourcefulness of people. It's not just good people. You know, it's not just good guys that win. It's clever people. That does seem to be a trend. Jordan? Also, pretty much every supernatural creature in the land is either malevolent, servile, petty, or some combination of the three. Malevolent, servile, or petty? Yeah. Many of them are uh, two of even three of those things, like the, uh, the witch in uh, Sleeping Beauty, who, uh, not the witch, the theory, sorry. Yeah. Um, who, who's, she is supposed to be so vile, but she got it wrong, so she's acting happy. And, from, and the first is certainly one love on thing, even if it's only a first, it's done by pettiness. It, it, it's not speaking up, you know, volumes with uh, the Pio, the supernatural world. <laughs> There's no clear boys anymore, it looks like. We certainly haven't met one. Um, not a Triamore, exactly. Again, we've met a couple Dame Ragnalls. They've tended to be boys, not yeah. girls, but we've met a couple Dame Ragnalls, right? I mean, certainly... Certainly, the Beast, and implicitly the black bull slash prince i guess um are in that category I was actually hesitant to place the beast in the supernatural creatures because it's not his choice to be supernatural but I guess that kind of world that they might I mean during the song I thought it was like mother's, his mother's advisor or something like that yeah, no, we're talking about Beating the Beast. No, this is, yeah, we're talking about the, uh, the Black Bull, too. See, we're talking about too many stories at once. <laughs> this is one of the things that I think is interesting, though. When we talk about supernatural figures, like are we talking about fairies, are we talking about witches, and who are the witches, it's like what I was talking about last time about the magician in Aladdin versus, you know, like the, the, the fairies or the ogress or whatever in other stories. Um, we don't have, these are not, these are not just fairy tales in the sense that they are interested just in either fairies, the creatures, like we see in some, such as Cinderella in Sleeping Beauty, but not in all by any stretch, or even in fairy in one sense in which we've been talking about it, that is the place where fairies live, that alternate world which is different from the human world, the place where Sir Orfeo goes, the place where Landfall seems to find himself, the place where Beauty's dad seems to find himself when he's in the wood, the place where possibly Hansel and Gretel seem to find themselves when suddenly they're at the house that's made out of cake. Um, but 
fairy can also, it seems, be understood in a different way, in, a, in, in an even broader way than that. Uh, because it seems to him, it's, it's, it's a thing which embraces these, these other creatures as well. The witch, is she a fairy or is she not? I don't think that that's a question that's really very useful in the end. Like, is she the same kind of thing? Like, let's, let's try to identify the species of the witch. I'm not sure. That's, I mean, I, and Kelly, you, I think you rightly responded to that when I accused her of cannibalism, and you were like, well, not necessarily, right? Because it's true, she's not conclusively human, nor do I think she's conclusively non-human either. Um, but, uh, but again, I think that that's part of what we can see happening here in these stories collectively. That is that the interest is kind of, to some extent, broadened a little bit. And all of these other elements, and all of these other elements are also coming in. Yeah, Marta? Well, I feel like it's, it's like when we talked about um, the fairies in Sir Orfeo and trying to understand the, the moralistic code of the fairies. We can't completely, we can't really get into their heads. Um, I mean, the fairies in Orfeo, they, they took all these people, but then they did let, let her go with Orfeo, so they aren't bad. And I feel like the, the fairies were supernaturals or, or however it works in these stories. Um, they're not necessarily malicious either. We just don't know. And the ones who are plainly malicious, it's not obvious how supernatural they are either. Like ogres, for instance. Well, and then maybe ogres, just that's just what they do. They're not doing it to be mean. It's just, they're just hungry. Yeah. And that, I think, is one of the main thing we get from Sleeping Beauty, right? About the mother-in-law. She's not, like, evil, necessarily, by choice. I mean, she does make a choice to give in to her desire, but she's just, she can't help it, to some extent. That's what she does. It's who she is. The giants, you know, yeah, they're doing bad stuff, clearly bad stuff, but they're giants. And yet, one of the themes that we get, and we've gotten several times, is look past appearances, right? Don't judge categorically. And not, only, and not always as transparently as in Beauty and the Beast is that a primary theme. Snow White and Rose Red is really interesting in this regard, I think. Because we get that first, right? Oh my gosh, there's a bear at the door! And the mom's like, hey, let's not make rash assumptions. Come in, bear! And the bear's like, oh, thanks very much, that's really nice of you. Right? No one is the least bit surprised when the bear starts talking, and everyone considers this perfectly normal, and it's like a non-issue ever again. Like, okay, you know, and then they meet their friend the bear later on, and they're like, oh, we remember you, bear. Yeah, you were the one who came in, uh, you know, sat by the fireside, talked, right? Um, that didn't seem remarkable at the time. But anyway, then we meet the dwarf, right? Oh, this abusive dwarf who is always in trouble, and they're always helping him, and he's always mocking them, and he's always criticizing them and complaining. And I don't know about you, but I'm reading this, and I'm like, ah, mm, but look at them looking past appearances, right? But, it, then, it, but then at the, at the end, we get a twist, right? This dwarf seemed like a bad guy. He was really mean, and they had to put up with crap and put up with crap, but then in the end, it turned out that really... He was actually really mean, 
<laughs> I mean, I, I was fooled. Were any of you fooled? You sort of expecting him to turn into a prince or something? It's like, ah, oh, thank you for putting up with, like, you know, you passed the test and saw that you would be patient. And No, Aaron wasn't fooled. Well, then what's the difference? How do you know? You're not supposed to work past appearances. Why? Was what they did bad? I mean, if the point of the story, as we're told at the end, is the dwarf has to die, and as soon as the dwarf dies, then the bear prince turns back into a prince and gets his treasure and stuff. Well, they've been screwing it up all the way along. I mean, if they had just left him with his beard stuck in the tree so that somebody would come along and eat him, which obviously somebody would because, like, something would. I don't know even what it would be, like a weasel or something or <laughs> like a, you know, a wolverine. I don't know, but uh, it's kind of a fun image, isn't it? But anyway, so, the, or like the fish, you know, he was, he was about to drown and they saved his life. The eagle was about to kill him and they saved his life. Well... That was counterproductive, turns out. So the moral of the story is, if you see a mean little dwarf about to get killed, stomp on his head. Just forget about it. Really? Marna? Well, I think it's I think it's so important that they helped him because it would be a very different story if they're like, oh, he's really mean, we'll just let him die. Then if they're like, oh, we'll help him. Oh, we'll help him again. Oh, we'll help him again. I feel like the story does teach... Patience, even though that patience may not always pay off, except it did kind of because it's very different for the prince to come in and just, you know, kill him than if the little girls had done it. That would be, I mean, that totally, that would just be bad. Yeah, and they're trying to stop him, right? I mean, there's this moment where they're surprised. They're like, we've done all we could to keep this cantankerous, abusive little dwarf alive. And then we just rescued him again, and then darn it, but a bear has it leapt out of the woods, and they're like, stop, don't kill our mean little dwarf. <laughs> and then, then he kills him, and they're like, oh, man. <laughs> all of our effort wasted, and then he's like, it's okay, I'm the good bear. And they're like, oh, all right. And now I'm a prince, and now I'm marrying you. So, I mean, it's, it's like, and the take-home is? Yes. Yeah. I... I but you're right, it would be a very different story. And they are clearly good to have done what they did. Okay, it's one of the reasons I find that story so fascinating is that it doesn't go in sort of the stereotypical way, it's sort of the expected way. Um, it doesn't have a really simple moral. You know, there's not this like, therefore be patient and be good to people even when they're mean to you. That's not the take home of that story, at least that's not what works out for them. Yeah, Duncan? I actually have a question. Um, no. He has treasure with him all the time, and we know that he steals treasure from people, and we know that some of the people that he steals treasure from have been turned into animals. 
So yes, maybe the fish and the eagle and even the tree had good reasons to want the dwarf dead. Just as they try to thwart the bear, when he comes in, they fail to thwart the bear. They succeed in thwarting the eagle and the fish and the tree, right? Maybe Now, we don't know. We, we never meet, like, hi, I am the trout prince who, like, tries, <laughs> you know, to catch... <laughs> What was that? It's the brother. <laughs> the brother, right? He does have a brother. Yeah, it's, 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 the tree's the best man. Yeah, the tree's the best man. Yeah, no, you can have the whole, the whole, yeah, the whole wedding party from the. <laughs> that works. That works. I mean, it's what I, I. It's one of the things that I really love about this story. Just like I love the Black Bull of Norway, because there's so many open things in it. You know, it's so. It's not just a, a pat, neat little story. Um, or as in the case of Beauty and the Beast, a pat, long little story. Um, it's... Because we don't know. Where does he get... Is, is this the treasure of those creatures? Or, or it, I mean, are we supposed to understand that I was... I had just come from stealing treasure, or I have some of my own treasure, legally obtained that, seems a little unlikely. And, and I was just like, wow, I have my bag of gems thought this would be a good time to fish, so I'm just going to go fishing with my bag of gems, because I'm a dwarf who always carries around bags of gems, and so then I get into an unfortunate kink with my beard, and but I'm going to take my gems and go home, because I just happen to have them with me. I agree. It's, it does open the question, right? But again, and but that, if we think about it in that way, makes their acts of generosity even more no, I was about to say it makes it more puzzling. It doesn't make it more puzzling. I mean, their motivations are good. We see this strange little creature in need, in trouble, and we help him. Especially since it just seems, well, except for the eagle thing. Um, though I guess that could happen to anybody, at least anybody who's very small, you know, to be mistaken for prey by an eagle. But, uh, you know, like anybody who has a really long beard might possibly get uh, that there beard entangled in the fishing line could happen, right? I don't understand how he got his beard stuck in the tree. Uh, and I agree with you that this is in some way an animated tree which has trapped him. Happens, you know. Uh, anyway, I, that seems to me more plausible than like I was somehow extracting wood chips from in this tree when like suddenly now my beard is enclosed in the tree. I, I don't understand how that happened. <laughs> No, no, squirrel wouldn't do that. Uh, I'm trying to imagine like Snow White and Rose Red like going out and finding the dwarf like in a tussle with a squirrel, you know, like that, that I could see. In fact, this is a story which would sort of tempt one to write many more episodes of the dwarf. The, this, this, the, the comical potential of this story is really high, I think, actually. But... Um, but one of the things that I think is interesting, sort of going back to some of the points we were making earlier, the moral schema that the human characters in the story are working under just doesn't overlap. By a kind of accident, it turns out that they are in fact misguided to be acting in what is obviously the right thing from within their own code, from, from their own perspective. And their perspective only shifts. At the end, the only clue that we get 
that there's something not right about this, that this is not just a, you know, a, 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 a generous dwarf who's going to turn out like, you know, to be like the beast, except different, um, is the treasure, right? The fact that we're told about the treasure and the fact that he is sneaking away with treasure at the end of all of these near escapes. But, um, but I, I do think at the end, one of the things that we can see is that this story points to that, um, to that gap. I think pretty clearly. Um, more on the black bull. Do you understand what happened? Like, I'd read it several times before I figured out what the heck happened in that story. Let's let's sum up. So, daughter number three goes to the. Forget the other two daughters for a second. That's confusing enough. Daughter number three goes to the witch's house, which is apparently the place where the destiny of young girls comes to them down the road. Don't ask questions. That just happens, right? And hers, the other, her two sisters, their destinies are carriages. Yes, sorry with the fringe on top is exactly what they see coming down the road. And then she gets the black bull, which seems like she's, she's not happy with this, right? for understandable reasons, kind of understandable reasons, still difficult to understand reasons, actually. But anyway, off she goes riding on the black bull who takes her to the home of his three brothers where she is, for no obvious reason to us, given fruit, different pieces of fruit, which will somehow save her later on. We're told they'll give no indication of how or why. Then he has to go and fight the devil. And we have that wonderful transition. You sit here while I go fight the devil. <laughs> Blue is good, red is bad. But, there's a, but, the, but the important thing, the pivotal thing in the whole story is she's given instructions. She has a role. What's her job? Don't don't sit still. Sit on the rock. Don't move and don't get up. Oh, it's just like the little princess. And what does she do? She, she moves. How does she move? Yeah, she crosses her legs. We're told, why, why does she do this? With malice aforethought, does she cross her legs? She's so excited. She forgets the whole step. Exactly. She's so The blue light comes, right? Hooray, the black bull has defeated the devil in some sense. And in some conflict, which I don't understand. <laughs> but apparently, whatever it was, the good guy won in as much as the black bull is a good guy, which wasn't obvious from the beginning. And... <laughs> I've forgotten and I've crossed my legs. And he comes back and looks for her and she's not there. And she waits and waits and waits and he doesn't come. Um, what's the glass mountain? <laughs> There's a glass mountain. What happens with it? She's it's very pointy. <laughs> she has to climb over it because the bull went over it to fight the devil. That's where you go to fight the devil, apparently. The other side of glass, a glass mountain. But she can't get up it. It's too slippery. So she's going to get iron shoes. <laughs> which apparently will help you get over the glass mountain. But she's got to work for seven years to earn the shoes, and she does, and gets over the mountain. And then once over there, 
ends up with a washerwoman who has to wash bloody shirts given to her by a knight. And if they can clean the bloody shirts, then the knight prince will marry them, her, the person who washes the shirt. (laughs) And they can't do it. That is, the washerwoman and her daughters can't do it. But she can. It just works for her. Right? It's not that she is a, a superior washer person, uh, but rather that just like whenever she applies herself to washing these shirts, they come clean. And then we have the conspiracy by the evil, well, I mean, anyway, pragmatically corrupt washer mother, <laughs> right, to keep her away from the knight who is, I guess, the bull identical with the bull, and she seems to know this. The only clue that we get about this is the song that she sings, right? Seven long years, I worked for the... So, working for the shoes to cross the mountain to get over to the bull, so I guess she's clearly identifying the two of them. And then on the third night, he turns, and they get married, and the washerwoman is burned, and everybody except the burned washerwoman and her daughter lives happily ever after. But at least I get some punishment in this story. Exactly. No, it is kind of a relief, actually, when someone is finally burned at the stake or something. Um, Yeah, because people were getting off pretty easily in these stories so far. So that that is interesting. It's another thing that is interesting about this story. Well, of course, Rumpelstiltskin gets torn in half. But again, not only did he have it coming, he did it himself. I mean, yeah, it was self-inflicted. Though not, not exactly suicide. That is, it's not like he's actually trying to kill himself. It just ha- it could happen. I was going to say it could happen to anybody. I don't actually <laughs> think it could happen to anybody. Either step, either the put your leg through the floor step or the rip yourself in half afterwards step. Neither one I think are really very likely and very generally uh, understood safety problems. But anyhow, um, continue to be thinking. Uh, you know, as we as we move on, we've got several more lying stories to read for next week. Be thinking about, again, be thinking in these kinds of synthetic terms. I want to keep coming back to these larger themes and to see what are these stories interested in? How do they work? And how is that different from what we saw in the medieval stories? Have a good weekend. Okay, for the next class session, we'll be reading Jack and the Beanstalk, The Three Dwarfs, and The Twelve Brothers from Lang's Red Fairy Book. Thanks for listening, and Godspeed.